Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode. My name is Leota Johnson. And I'm Brianka Wright. And this is Higher Unlearning. The space where we analyze and reflect different concepts and structures which affect blackness. We got another one. Another one. Another guest. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Two. Two. <laughs> um, so we have some really dope individuals as always. Today, one of our guests, Mr. Arsene Frederick. Uh, we've known him from undergrad. Great individual. He's extremely stylish. If you cannot tell, I need you to look at this camera because he is glowing. His, <laughs> his jacket is fire. Um, like everyone we have on our, our podcast, he has a lot going on. He's a student. He's also a styling consultant with his own business, the um, Frederick Effect, and he started his own vlog, blog, podcast. This man is doing everything. So, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wouldn't it be right if we didn't introduce our second guest for this episode, Kentavis Collins, also known as KJ, rocking with us since we've been at FSU, was a mm. part of SOS, and now is joining us within ro- Raising Royalty. Y'all, this man's growth Ooh. over these years, I'm just blessed to be able to say... <laughs> I have been able to witness it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for allowing us to witness it. And part of his growth has been him starting his own project, Curb to Corporate, connecting the curb to the corporate. Amen. Through creativity. So, KJ, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Of course. <laughs> all right. So this episode, we're talking about, first of all, y'all see the name. That's where the money reside. Now you probably wonder what, what the hell that means. We're talking about classism within the black community. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a thing. Um, you know, how does it affect us? How, you know, do you get out of it? All the wonderful beauties ends out of this d- beautiful discussion mm-hmm. that is not held enough. Mm-hmm. And with this episode, you know, we always got to start off with a quote. This quote is by my all-time favorite, ma- well, other than my dad. <laughs> Outside of my family, all-time favorite person on this earth, Dr. Billy Ray Close. And he said, you can't cripple a man and then criticize the way that he walks. I'm going to open this up to you all. What does that mean to you? I get started. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's like if you hinder us, take away uh, everything from us, and then expect us to move on life the way y'all move, uh, y'all just speaking in general, Mm -hmm. meaning how do you expect us to walk? You expect us to walk normal still? Like, we can't move the same way if you took everything away from us. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think of this quote in two ways. So with the, the man analogy, imagine if this man was a model. And you know, as we know, models run down one run, walk down the, run, the runway. And so uh, if that individual is crippled uh, in that sense, for, for some reason, for, for some catastrophe, some event, caused by someone who's associated with the modeling industry or someone who's associated with whatever is relevant to that. Um, folks then can't turn to uh, say, oh, hey, look how you walk, things of that nature. But also in a figurative sense, in a real world sense, in a more broader sense, um, in that you know, inequality is real, the isms, all of the isms, all of those things are real. And a lot of folks uh, didn't act to be born into that. And so considering that you know, people are born into this world and they bear identities that fall along those society puts onto people, I categorize in terms of those isms, it's really a, 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 kind of a, a kind of a critique in that sense to say, you know, hey, I didn't ask for this, you know, I'm just being myself, I'm just being my authentic self. And so in that, you can't then turn around, turn around and kind of ridicule me or criticize me just for me being who I am. I always think about, whenever I hear this quote, I automatically think of Dr. Close. And I always think about it within the context he will use it in class. Within his classes, he's 
he spoke from the black male perspective because that's who he is, you know, a black man. And whenever we're talking about those different isms that you touched on our scene, he would always say like, you can't cripple me. You can't hinder me. You can't cut me off from certain resources. You can't deny me access to different things and then continue to be like, oh, well, why can't you get yourself out of this? Mm-hmm. And then I also think about something, a uh, conversation we and one of my friends had when we were undergrad and we were talking about the whole like pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. But black people, how are you supposed to pull yourself up if you don't have no boots to, to pull up? You know what I mean? There's no bootstraps there. That's like there's no straps. There's, there, no- there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, that's my foot, you know? Mm-hmm. So the idea of being crippled and then the person who crippled you being like, man, just get up, walk it off type of thing. Like you good. It's not realistic. Yeah. And I think something that I always think of is just <laughs> when you're, questioning or you're judging the way that I'm walking you're also taking away what you did you take you take away your accountability and even if it's not you like if it's not personally you you benefited from this race that we all gotta run like we all have to run and walk this journey and some people are literally just walking the only way they've known how to forever and they get criticized for doing what they only know how to do and the people who are usually doing the criticizing is people who learn how to walk a little faster the ones who don't have as many heels or dips into their race so it's just that one of a lack of accountability and two, just a lack of humanity of just not being able to see that person who they are and where they are and acknowledge it like that is valid. Mm -hmm. Like I understand what you're going through and what you've been through, but people don't ever look at someone else's situation or want to put themselves into that situation. Mm -hmm. So with today's topic, uh, if we haven't already said, we're going to be discussing black elitism. So with that being said, I just kind of want to know, Within y'all's upbringings, what socioeconomic status would you say that your family was in? And outside of that, how did others perceive you being in either that status or did they perceive you differently? Me, like, I say my status, well, my family status, me and my grandmother, it was, we were working poor. I said, right, we were the working poor, so the lower SES class. And... To the people in the neighborhood, because we had, you feel me, pretty much nice things. We had computers, laptops, things like that. Things that everybody didn't have. They looked at us like we were a little bit ahead of them. But then, when I went to middle school in a different neighborhood, different SES class, they looked at me like, oh, like, you way behind. You need to step it up a little bit, type of thing. So that's how it was in my upbringing. I feel like my life is segmented. And the reason why I say that is because when I was very young, before my dad went to prison, we were uh, middle class. But then when my dad went to prison, we then became uh, low to middle class. And then, you know, I I would say sort of just recently, it's a a really weird place. I think we're still there, but it's, you know, almost this transition back to middle class, if that makes sense. Because my family's in the process of, uh, well, my mom really is in the process of buying a house. So when it comes to how people perceived it, so growing up uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Broward County, um, there's this thing, there's this place called uh, Shallow Side. There's also this place called Deep Side. And so um, we, we were in, and this is in Fort Lauderdale, this is in Lauderhill in Broward County. Uh, so we were in like Shallow Side. So, you know, it's, it's an urban sort of community um, and every, you know, one around is a city, you know, kind of urban life, you know, and it has those urban trends, all of the things that is associated with that. So, you know, a lot of folks did, you know, I, I think I can relate in that sense to when you mentioned, you know, having some things that are, I guess you could say, a little bit more materialistic, if you will. Um, a lot of folks would sort of look at it to where they understand 
you know, our, our family to be a little bit more privileged in that sense. Um, even when my dad um, went to, you know, went away to be incarcerated, you know, we still kind of had, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, things and materialism and things that materialistic things, you know, part of me would attribute that to a strong foundation, a strong family foundation, in the sense that we always stick together. My brothers, I have a lot of family, they always worked. And so they were always sort of kind of pouring back into the family for where we lost or things that we didn't have, they were pouring back in. So, you know, in the areas where we were losing, it's almost like we were gaining. And so this is why I say it's weird. But yeah, that's just my experience growing up. Um, for me, my family is definitely working class. Um, my parents had me very, very young. My mom was literally just out of high school. She was 18. I said my mother was still in high school. She was pregnant me at prom. <laughs> so like my mother was in high school and my father was, he went off, but he ended up coming back home. So they were very, very young. My dad was 21. My dad, my mom was 18. So they was working. They really worked to get together. And with being two young people trying to make a living, of course, there's times that are hard. Like, you know, there's moments of like having your lights off and, you know, your electricity or whatever it is, like doing, having to boil the water to like take showers and stuff like all of that. That was literally my middle school, like really trying to grind it out. But people did not perceive me or like my family that way just because when that whole what happens in our house stays in our house so you don't really tell, tell no one else but my family like I one have both my parents so that's people immediately like you have both your parents y'all got money and two my no matter what like certain things like my mother would never let a birthday well my parents would never let a birthday go without me getting something like they always made sure that I was celebrating on my birthday, Christmas. They were always big on making sure that I had a Christmas. And like, I literally remember having rough Christmases where, but our rough Christmas is like, all of us got one gift. That's a rough Christmas. Everybody still did something to provide. So because that's how people seen, seen us, they like, you always get gifts or you da 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 Like they see the things that I've had, they perceive me as like having money or things like that. It was just, no, we were a family that grinded and took care of each other and showed that's, we made sure we showed appreciation for each other. I would say for the most part, I grew up middle class. Till I was about seven, it was just me and my mom. And then once my stepdad came and he retired from the military, that's when they started having my younger sisters. And I would say that that's when things started to shift for us financially. Because my younger sisters, one of them, she has really bad eczema. And the other one, she just has a lot of instabilities. So my stepdad actually stopped working so that he could stay home with one of them and be able to care for her. So I would say since he retired and since he, honestly, since my sisters were born, it's really just been one stable income being my mom. And that has affected us both positively and negatively, depending on the time frame. How was I perceived? Well, K through eight, I went to a private school and I would say the way my school was set up, it was really easy for us to not think about money. And I didn't understand at the time, but we were required to wear a uniform, not necessarily uniform as far as like polo with khakis, but we had to wear solid color shirts and, you know, whatever pants. And our clothes couldn't have any logos on it. And part of the reason why was because they didn't want kids to feel any type of way because like, oh, I can't afford that type of thing. But little did they know, like a lot of the kids in the school, like really couldn't afford to be in that school. I was probably one of them. <laughs> so I don't think anyone really cared about money when we were that young. But once I got to high school, that was my first time being in a predominantly black school. And that's when I started to realize that people looked at me as having money because of the way that I talk, 
because of the way that I dressed, the people I hung out with. And my best friend in high school, she was really well off. Like her dad was a doctor and they, their house was beautiful. Like it, she had a great childhood. And because I hung out with her and they thought that she was bougie, it was like, oh, you're bougie too. And I was like, I'm one of the most down to earth people <laughs> you will ever meet. I don't smile all the time. So I may look a little mean, but I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself bougie. So I just think it's really interesting, like hearing y'all's background and how people perceived you all. And then like just me living my own life, how people perceive me. It's crazy to think that it's the tiniest things mm-hmm. for us to be able to say like, oh, you have this, so you must have money. Or you talk like this, you must have money. Oh, yeah. you don't know about this, you must have money type of thing. So yeah, it's it was, it was funny. Like it was a point in my, especially like around in middle school, I kind of felt like I had to downplay certain things mm-hmm. to fit into what school I went to and like my classmates and certain things. That's so when people... Like, asked me where I lived. I was like, oh, I lived on 6th Street. And 6th Street is a long street. <laughs> so it's like, one end of the streets is literally the projects. And, like, it's really known. It's called the White House. It's like, it's, they, people know the projects. And the other side, if you keep going, it's, it's like, it's a really nice lake. You know, some of the houses are really nice and all that stuff. I lived on the side that's pretty, like, it was pretty nice. My mother, I mean, my father uh, pretty much inherited that house from his uncle and then his mother. So, like, that house has been in the family so it was like, it's another, I guess, the example of our family looking out for each other and kind of holding each other. But I felt like if people knew I lived on this side, you know, I might be a little seen like a little like this. Like, y'all already think I have money because my clothes ain't dirty. Or like, y'all know, I know like you might see my dad come to school every now and then. But like, I don't know. Another thing with my neighborhood or my school, being well off also kind of seemed as like a grounds for people to try to mess with you like they're going to try to play you like you you soft because you know you you're privileged so you soft so that's why i fought a lot in middle school because like no that's not that's not me i ain't I, that ain't my blood like ain't no in my blood so i'm curious to learn what's the historical kind of context behind sixth street and what i mean behind that is you know i'm, I'm hearing a lot of um you know just kind of like separation between, I guess you could say, one side is the more affluent side and one side is the more not affluent side. Um, but there's, is there any type of history where back in the day, you know, a lot of black businesses were, you know, on this on the street um, or anything like that, any type of black history or anything like that? So um, Palm Beach Island itself, which is yeah. like the wealthiest area of Palm Beach, when yeah. people think of Palm Beach, they think of the island. It's very, very wealthy, but that used to be predominantly black. Black people used to live on the island. Yeah. They burned the island to push all the black people off. And that's in, like, all the black people pretty much moved into the city on the outskirts, like, the actual part of West Palm. So, it's funny, like, it's literally nothing but a stoplight separating my neighborhood, which is called Westwood, from White Houses, which is the projects. It's nothing but a stoplight that separates the two sides. And the thing is, with the side, with the lake on it, because the lake has that value of, you know, the the beautification and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. that's where all the wealthier people end up going. And the people who, and honestly, there's a lot of black doctors, a lot of black lawyers that who lived in my neighborhood, but they were oftentimes the people who, they got those houses because they were able to afford it or their family, like like how my family was passed down kind of thing. So that side end up, and it's honestly, it's just along the lake is where the kind of the wealthier side, but the, in the middle of the neighborhood, it was still kind of rough. So it was, I was like, if I walked to my middle school, I, I kind of had to be like on my edge because you could get in a fight at any moment type of thing. So it was really that whole transfer of like burning the island, black people being pushed off. I don't know why. Well, the lake, of course, being a source of money and people like with nicer things lived on that side. And then the other side, I don't know how that became the projects, but it ended up becoming the projects and Tamron and all that's all of that that ended up becoming like the hood. I don't know why, but 
it's it is i've always thought it was crazy just how it was literally separated by a stoplight between the why, two do, why do i feel like black communities have like for example you said sixth street we also have a sixth street yeah. and it's similar like, i'm hearing some similar things there's also things like south side and like you know martin mm-hmm. the king street or martin the king Ave, martin and king things like that you know like, <laughs> 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 but i'm just wondering like, i'm just really I, I feel like i know the answer to this but i mean i feel like this will actually help contextualize the conversation a little more you know, when we we're starting to hear the black communities or places that are like historic in this sense, you know, it's associated with that. Like you said, people feel like you're soft or I'm going to try yeah. you. Things like that. I just feel like that's um, that's interesting. So growing up, how did your like status affect the way that you viewed or perceived blackness? Okay, I feel like that was a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing a little bit. Let's get into it. So my surroundings, you know, again, I mentioned, you know, it was my father went you know, went away at five. So I didn't really, you know, my uncle, he always say we live sheltered lives. You know, my mom would, you know, they would get in, and this is my great uncle. So that's her uncle, my great uncle. So they, you know, they were, you know, getting to their little, now, I wouldn't necessarily call it an argument. It was just that, that kind of generational thing mm-hmm. there. And it really wasn't until actually that graduated from Florida State and moved to DC in the DMV area where I realized I kind of did uh, live a sheltered life in that sense. Because um, it wasn't until I would say I got to high school that I became more aware. You know, I think I was already socially aware, you know, just sort of growing up, but more aware in terms of classism, in terms of elitism, in terms of, you know, all the isms and, you know, more things that's going on around us. So on my way to high school, I went to um, a school called Arthur Ashe Middle School. So to return back to your original question on your original question on just my upbringing and my environment and, and how that influenced my, my perception of things, you know, uh, th- there's a lot that, you know, I discussed, but to really just kind of keep it real simple, you know, there are stages, it's segmented, and it's really until, again, as I mentioned, I graduated from Florida State that I really began to step into my own. And for me, pretty much, I say it wasn't until middle school when I really got a sense of what it meant to be black, because during that time period, that was the first time that I really was outside of of being around nothing but black people. I had finally went to a diverse school. The school, we had all different types of races. And it was pretty much like black people was probably like 20%. The rest was just all over the place. So for me, seeing like how they looked at us, it was kind of like, oh, like this is new to me. It's a new world to me. But I caught on quick to it. Because I mean, like sixth grade, it's either at that point in survival mode. That's when everybody's pretty much learning who they are, learning what they want to do, type thing. So from there, that's when I learned. Okay, my skin color does play a play a effect. I I'm getting in more trouble over smaller things than other kids are getting in trouble for. So that's when I knew, like, I gotta work that thing where you gotta work twice as hard and just be even. Yeah, that's where that comes in. Exactly. Like, I learned that sixth grade, so yeah, my perception of blackness came in early. My perception of blackness, my perception of blackness. Growing up, I really thought blackness was, I equated blackness with struggle. Like, I really kind of seen just like, I didn't equate, I didn't understand like blackness could be so, so diverse and like it could be so, like you have affluent black people, you can have that didn't really. I seen what I saw in my, in my neighborhood. You know, my family was like I said, they were workers, they grind. My childhood best friend, 
who I thought he was rich. His mother is a teacher. So now as an adult, I realize he's not rich. <laughs> but as a kid, I thought he was rich because he had a whole bunch of, like, play, he had every game system. He had all, a whole bunch of pets. And he had all this stuff. And I'm like, that's, you have money. <laughs> so it's like, it really wasn't until I got to Florida State where I got to see, one, Florida State's when I first got exposed to white people for real. Mm-hmm. That was like my first exposure because I was always around black people. My high school was the same type of, thing you were saying like mm-hmm. I thought my high school was going to be like lean on me yeah. I really thought I saw lean on me yeah. right before high school and I was like I'm yeah. going to die like I, I really thought like I, this is going to be my school yeah. but I learned a lot in school and actually high school I, that's where I met a lot of black attorneys because I was in a pre-law program yeah. so I met a lot of black attorneys um, seeing teachers who are grinding and working and have different businesses that helped me expose my idea of what blackness was but the idea of having to defend blackness did not hit me until I get to college Oh, that's a period. Okay. I didn't know if it was a period or a comma. Um, <laughs> I would say I I struggled with what blackness was for a really long time growing up. Um, so like I said, went to um, private school. A lot of time I was one of the only black faces, if not the only one. So my school wasn't broken up by grade. We were kind of grouped together by age and it wasn't until we got older that we realized like oh okay like that means I'm in this grade or I'm in that grade so it's somewhere between first and third grade this story happened I don't know what we were talking about or how we got here but I remember one of the other black girls in my class kept telling me like I'm you're African-American and I was like no I'm not I didn't come from Africa I'm just American like what are you talking about she was like no like you're African-American and then one of the other students in the class he was white he kept saying it too and I was getting mad I was like I'm American. Like, how are you going to tell me I'm African-American? I was born here. My mama mm-hmm. was born here. My granddaddy was born here. I'm American. And they're like, no, like, we're talking about your skin. Like, you're African-American. And at that point, like I said, it, it didn't hit me. And then I don't think I, I struggled with my identity a lot in, in, um, while I was at that school. And then once I got into high school, like I said, it was predominantly black, but I wasn't black enough. <laughs> People always tell me like, 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 again, how I talk. And I would even hear it like when I would go visit like my dad's side of the family, I would go visit them every summer. And like my cousins and stuff, they'd be like, why do you talk like that? So what do you mean I'm talking? I'm saying words. You don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> Everyone else can understand what I'm saying. What do you mean I'm talking? So it was always how I talked, how I dressed, what I have, the things that I do, mm-hmm. movies that I see, movies that I haven't seen. I was never black enough. So... In college, I would I wouldn't say I was trying to like overcompensate for my blackness, but I was definitely trying to be like, I'm black and y'all gonna see me. Because I felt like I wasn't seen for so long. And I think that because of my upbringing and me feeling like I never really belonged, I think that's part of the reason that I worked so hard to defend blackness because I know how this is not the word I I want to use, but I don't know how else to say it, how fragile it can be because it's an identity that we are now, well, not now, throughout the years have had to create for ourselves. And because I have been in a place where I had to create blackness for myself, I know what it feels like for it to be, to not be there. You know what I mean? So I'm defending it. Yeah. I was like, one of my biggest things was I'm not going to allow you who don't look like me to speak ill mm-hmm. of a lifestyle, of a, of a space that you aren't in. And honestly, I never had to do that until I got to Florida State. Just because, again, my schools were black. Like, I, I've, I've never had to defend to another black person. Like, no, black people don't do this for just because they're black. Because we all at least understand that, like, we're, why we're moving a certain way. 
And I remember I took a class at FSU, um, the psychology of African-Americans. And she talked the professor, the professor talked about the degrees of black. And one of the first high, like beginning levels of your awakening blackness is literal being radical black. Like you're defending your blackness in all spaces. You are super black. And that's one of the first levels of realizing your blackness. And so when I learned, and I took that class on my senior, junior, senior year, and I was like, that's why I was snapping in class all the time. <laughs> that's why I had, to, I felt like I had to do that because we, one, when you're in a neighborhood when everyone look like you, you don't have to defend you. Like mm-hmm. you're, there's a common understanding of like, I kind of had to defend myself because of music I listen to. Cause at the end of the day, when you're around niggas, you're around niggas, like everybody, you can see that. But going to college and seeing like, oh, even someone who looked like me, but you grew up in a different, that was also my first time. Like, you look like me, but you grew up in a different class. You grew up in a different environment, neighborhood. So you don't associate with me. Like, that was my first time I experienced that. Like, I literally tried to make a friend and we didn't click or like, we really never talked because I did not found out he was trying to join a white frat. And I was like, oh, you're, oh, I've seen you on TV. Like, I've seen your character on TV. Like, that's the, <laughs> but it's just like that whole, that black kid who, who hung around with nothing but white people and was that's literally all their friends. And, like, I never saw that in real life until I got to Florida State. So college did, like, open my eyes up to, like, the differences of blackness. And with black people only making up, what, 8% of the population, it was, I learned a lot from the little population that we did have. Can I, can I springboard off that real quick? Because cause I like that you said it opened up your eyes to, um, I guess you could say, the degrees. That That is, you know, a sweet spot. And I really want our society to lean into that more. Um, I think... For me also, right, and it opened my eyes up to the similarities that we have. Well, not we as a culture, but societally that societally <laughs> in our society that we had similar that we have with other demographics in the sense that, OK, so take, for example, something like, you know, welfare. You know, a lot of times um, someone who is in a marginalized group is the poster child for welfare. But I know y'all know. And if you don't know the highest proportion of recipients for welfare in the United States is white people. It's who? Let the people know. It's, it's white people, right? Oh, okay. okay, so, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, to kind of take a step back and kind of take a more broader understanding of this, a lot of times we attribute certain characteristics and behaviors and personas and all these things, you know, to, you know, a demographic or a race. And while that can be true, certain things like, like, let's talk about welfare queen and how, you know, we start talking about, you know, a person who is, a woman, shall I say, this is what welfare queen is when we think about Ronald Reagan. You know, someone who is, you know, um, you know, abusing the system and someone who is, you know, getting you know, a lot of money, you know, and pretty much people who are, I guess you could say, hardworking Americans, taxpayer citizens, you know, it, their money is being abused. You know, there are other people who do that as well. There are other demographics who, who do that as well. That doesn't mean that it makes it right. Right. I'm not saying that it makes it right, but there are other folks that do that as well. However, that is specifically uh, stigmatized and attached to someone who is a part of the black demographic. And so, you know, again, I went to a black high school and that doesn't mean I wasn't around other folks. But as Leo said, I was primarily immersed in that black culture. And it was when I got to Florida State, I was able to be exposed to people, you know, and particularly white folks and and really begin to decouple my understanding in the sense that not all white people are, are rich, not white. All, all white people got money. There are some white folks who come from rural areas, southern areas, you know, who, you know, may have lived similar lifestyles to, to myself because I was on welfare. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think about 
about it like that, there's a broader way we can think about it and understand it um, in the sense that, well, if we're both on welfare, we're going to have similar characteristics and behaviors. That doesn't mean I should discriminate against you, but that's just a fact. So, you know, that's what I also appreciate about my experience at Florida State. All right. I got a question to put on the table. So you were talking about there being degrees within other races and degrees within the black community. But where do you think the divide of those degrees within the black community comes from? Because we acknowledge that there's different, I don't want to say levels of blackness, but people perceive their blackness differently and portray it differently. But we can't always accept what other people are Mm -hmm. portraying their blackness to be. So where does that divide come from? I think the divide comes from, for so long, black people had to fight for blackness to define what blackness is. And once there was some type of a degree of understanding what blackness was, anything that the like was outside of that were outliers, but they also like confuse or they like is a potential harm to what we worked hard to define. Mm-hmm. So it's like I can I need to say this is blackness because that makes sense for us. And we're in this bubble, we're in this in this realm. I can do that. But anyone who's stepping outside of that, you are a threat to the work that we've done to create blackness. So I think like that's. And then for some people, like even how you were saying, like when you went to high school, you weren't black enough. Yeah. And that's when like that's uh, I feel like a kind of defense mechanism of I'm protecting this idea of blackness I have. And when and then for some people who have that effect in regards to, oh, you're not black enough. Well, shit, I won't be. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to be affluent since apparently affluence is not black. My intelligence is not black. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to continue to get this wealth, to continue to get this, because apparently that's not black. You need to go where the money resides. I need to go where the money resides. <laughs> so, this, so it's like for so long there has, I feel, that's where my understanding, when you asked, like that's really my first thought process was we fought for blackness and everything outside of that was a threat to what we fought so hard to get. Mm, what's your thing? I completely agree that you couldn't have said it more better. Um, so we talked, we each talked about like pretty much the impact that school has had or just like education has had our black awakening. But what role do you think education has have in classes or like just the difference between like classes? I feel like the fact that I'm like, I say the lower class is not as educated, don't have the access to the resources. They look at education as, as being something that's not attainable or almost like, I don't need to do this because I'm never going to be able to fit in anyway type of thing. So that right there, that mindset that they developed over time, that was developed over time, kind of just plays in a part of like holding holding themselves back almost. Like they won't go after something because they feel like by the time they get there, it's not going to be worth it or it's going to be too late. So they don't go for it. They don't try to educate themselves. They don't try to look for it. They kind of just let what people tell them, they just kind of just take that in and just accept it for what it is instead of going out and doing their own research on their own. But like, say you go up, go up a class, the middle class, they're more likely to go out and try to see what something means. Go look, um, research a topic, see like, okay, I heard you say this, but let me go check the facts almost. Let me go check to see, is this right? So, and as you keep going up in classes, more and more research is being done, so more and more opinions are being created. The higher um, up your class is, the more opinionated you are, the more social you're going to be, different things like that. Like, I feel like the lack of education in the lower, lower SES class holds them back, and the access to education in the higher classes keeps them elevated. Mm-hmm. Does that reign true for someone who was born in a higher class? 
I feel like yes, because like from the time they were little, their parents almost teaching them that from out the womb, almost they're getting taught different things. Go research this. You don't know yourself, go look it up. Don't just believe anything someone says type of thing. So yeah, they, they're all automatically trained. The things they look at on TV, um, even that plays a part. Cause I asked that, cause I've met a lot of really rich, dumb white boys at FSU. <laughs> That's facts too. But also remember that he was saying that they ha- they have access to different things. So when I think of the individuals who are maybe not the most book smart, but they've had access to things, mm-hmm. they have skills that will connect them to people where their network yeah. allows them to be not as book smart. Yeah. Cause I remember like being in classes or whatever and having like lab mates or whatever. I said, like, bro, you would not be in here if your daddy didn't write that check. Like I, I had to grind to get to this school, <laughs> but like if your daddy, you literally got here cause your daddy wrote that check. So it's like, we staring education. Like you were saying, like we had the access to research and whatever, but then there's some people who have the access, but they don't tap in cause they don't have to. Everything has been given to them. But also it may not be necessarily. So I think something that I'm, I've been learning within this past year is the difference between having an education and being educated. Yes. Um, yes. And I think a lot of people focus on the stigma of having an education, but there are many people with degrees who are not educated. And there are many people without degrees who are, they have a wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, even though those people, we perceive them as being dumb, honestly, airheads they can be educated in certain aspects where they still know how to manipulate their money so that it works for them Mm -hmm. where they don't really need to go to school in order to elevate themselves i feel like like a lot of people that like didn't have the access to the resources they find other ways to be able to advance in the world basically Mm -hmm. like you said they they find ways to make their money work for them like that's big facts like Mm -hmm. can you remind me of the question again what role does education play in the differences between classes? And we're, we're speaking about this in the context of the black community, correct? In general. In general? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think education for, I answer it two ways, because, you know, double consciousness is realized, W. E. Duval said. So for the black community, I think education itself has been an equalizer. So, you know, we talk about it in a context of, you know, uh, coming in like, you know, slavery or enslavement in the sense that, you know, there's, there's, People always point to the W.E.B. Du Bois versus the Booker T. debate, right? Where Du Bois believed, or this is how people understand it, I think it's more nuanced than this, that, you know, folks should go become educated and they should um, become more into uh, sophisticate themselves out of racism. This is what the race should do. Black folks, Negroes at the time. But then Booker T. was like, yo, you know, we were, you know, enslaved for folks were enslaved. We have a lot of skills. So we need to lean into that vocational and that technical training. Um, and so you were seeing that with Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University. And so, you know, there is there is a, a big ideological difference in, you know, what the role of education, you know, was for people in that sense and, and what how it served. And I feel, I feel as though you continue to see this uh, show up in different ways. But for the more broader America, I, I think uh, education itself or should I say broad America, education itself is something that is really just a tool. A tool to do what? I I, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I'm serious. I don't know. I I really don't know. And let me tell you the reason why I say that. Because, okay, there's a lot that, you know, just understanding the education system in our society, you know, know, a lot of people will say it's not that good. 
Okay, I agree with that to a certain extent. And the reason why I say that is because what a lot of people don't know is prior to the 1920s, the vast majority of people in American society were not like affluent, were not rich. A lot of them were poor. And this includes a lot of white people. You know what I mean? And it was until right now I go to American University and this is a school that was started by Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, to train public servants because he had a lot of programs. We're talking about social security, welfare, all of those programs, it started with him. So it was, it was really at that moment when he brought a lot of those programs to our population in the United States, you begin to see the creation of a middle class. But at the same time, a lot of people still weren't necessarily going to get degrees. You get what I'm saying? People were going to pursue technical education and vocational thing, vocational education. And it's really it really became probably until the 1970s that people began to turn and say, okay, now I want to professionalize and maybe pursue a master's degree or a professional degree. I would probably argue until the 2000s. And the reason I say that is because I recently completed an internship at HUD and it's a lot of folks who's been working up in there for 30 years. And you know, some of them don't have degrees, they're in influential positions. And some of them only have a bachelor's degree, you know what I mean? And they're, you know, they're asking me, you're gonna get your what, your doctorates? You know, and they couldn't, they couldn't wrap their heads around why I was going to get that. So there definitely is a generational thing in that, in that instance. But again, I think there's a difference in, again, the black community in the broader United States, how education serves the broader population, I, I really don't know. You know, I think it's useful, but people use it in different ways. So you made a comment that education within education for black people serves to be like an equalizer. Mm -hmm. I agree with that statement. Mm -hmm. However, I also believe that education within the black community serves as part of that division. Because when I think of black elitism and when I think of, especially with my own upbringing, education is what made me not black. Mm. Because <laughs> be like I keep going back to this, but the way that I speak is a result of my education. I, my, I remember being really young and my, me and my mom reading books at night. And me and my, my mom would always have me read signs while we were driving mm -hmm. in the car. Um, my mom would always teach me new words and be like, I, I remember this one in particular. She would always, Brianka, you need to learn how to improvise. Oh, we don't have all, everything we need. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? She, like, she would make me think for myself. So that sense of individualism and education and critical thinking, those skills... I feel as though even though you still learn them outside of the schoolhouse, it works to be a division within the black community because it makes it seem like you're trying to be white. But I also feel like that's also a division within classism within the black community. Um, I felt like when you were speaking, just thinking of like what, like when you say, what does education do for people? The first thing that I thought was it gives you a license. Like for it gives me a license. Like with our driver's license, it tells us we're allowed to drive. So with education, even no matter how good we are at whatever skill job, sometimes if you don't have that degree, no one's gonna listen to what you have to say. Only reason I'm going back to school. Only reason I'm <laughs> in law school. Like if it wasn't for like me needing this degree to be able to say I can advocate, I can do this. Like that degree is literally the only thing that's mm -hmm. allowed me that stopped me from going to that career. Because even when I worked at for a nonprofit, when I walked walked into the prisoners' office or I walked into certain spaces, they immediately was like, "Who are you? Like, like what are you doing?" And it literally took me time and them just seeing me, my work, and all that stuff then to acknowledge. But if I had a degree attached to my name, there would be no questioning why I was in that room. So it like the degree unfortunately gives me license for other people to listen to me. And I don't like that because I don't want school. I don't want to be back at school. I'm like, I, it's, it was just certain things because like, I, yes, I'm going, in, I'm in law, but it's certain parts of like, I want to do psychology as well. Like even undergrad, I was, I had a, a background in psychology, but I was like, I don't want to go back to school. 
workplace? Like, do I need to go get something in psychology for people to believe that I'm, I can do this work as yes. well? So it's really aggravating because for other people, how you said they're able to go and get very affluent jobs or very high paying or, or top level jobs without having to get their doctorate or their JD or like their PhD. They just know the right people and they've been in the right spaces and environments in the right rooms for long enough. I ain't got that time. I ain't got like no one's just letting me in a room for 30 years to be able to work into like, oh, you don't you, you're good with your bachelor's. That was, that was another period. <laughs> okay. You heard a comma though, right? Don't tell me yeah. I'm not the only one who heard a comma. Anywho. I feel you, I feel you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, but I also feel like that everything you just said goes back to what I was saying about the difference between being educated and having an education. Because while we were in undergrad, we would also do a lot of our own research about like, okay, what's the demographic at these different schools? Mm-hmm. Like why are the certain students struggling in these areas but students at these schools aren't struggling like what are the different reasons like just being able to analyze things for ourselves but also within that we only had access to a lot of those different journals and things because we were a part of this larger institution yes now that i'm not in school and i try to do my own research blocked oh you got to pay for this mm-hmm. oh you don't go to this school oh you can't access <laughs> And it's like well dang like i want to be able to read these things so it's like there's certain restrictions on who is allowed to educate themselves because they want you to pour money into yeah. a formal education. The money always is the answer. Like everybody, I want to be where the money reside without having to pay, pay for you. the more money. Because y'all not getting these loans back. I want to know why, even even within the black community, we doubt our own work. Like these institutions were built for us. Why are we doubting the the quality that's coming from these institutions? I think that just come from basically the societal makeup, like how society has presented itself over the years, how time basically shows, like, basically instilled in our heads that the white people are higher up, they're more advanced than us, that we we don't believe in ourselves anymore. It's, it's to that point where it's like, we got comfortable, we got mm. too comfortable with saying that, okay, um, when someone is trying to be affluent or, or it's all black, that oh, it's not going to be as quality as the white people or the white people has better quality. We, we, we got too comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's what it basically comes down to. Was there a point where we failed ourselves or have we just gotten so comfortable relying on white businesses and white institutions to support ourselves? We got too comfortable with um, expecting them to, like you said, support us. And we got too comfortable with them uh, having to go to them for financial gain, having to go to their banks to get a loan, different things like that. Like for their resources, we have got to go through them to get resources. And because we always had to do that, we always going to look at what they bring to the table as better than what we bring to the table. Because I was say this is kind of tying into yeah. even a quote, the whole crippled, yeah. like crippling a man and then questioning how he walks or like judging the way he walked because HCUs weren't they were literally built out of necessity but why why are we judging it though that's why I asked like was there a point in time where we failed ourselves to the point where we can no longer trust each other it's just like where was that switch because like we weren't even allowed at Florida State but so we, we had to go to like, the to the fam use and all that stuff right so it's like the black doctor the older black doctors black lawyers they came from HCU so it, like, I'm just like where's that switch where's this like that's why I'm confused maybe like maybe yeah. doing like I say maybe doing the civil rights movement where like you had the Black Panther Party but then you had the peaceful protest with Martin Luther King mm-hmm. type thing maybe that divide right there the radicals versus those who are trying to bring everybody together that divide 
maybe be the reason that now it's like, okay, you're either one side or the other. So the fact that we was divided back then, everybody looked at us like we can't come together almost. And now we look at ourselves like that. I don't know, like, that's what I'm kind of thinking. Like maybe that's where it came in. Maybe that's where we got too comfortable relying on the white resources. When we get to the civil rights movement and the, the actual legislation that's passed, you know, those types of things, and I think people downplay the effects of that, but that is really big policy legislation and regulations in the sense of uh, the effect that it has over you know citizenship status livelihood and how people understand and how they how they really perceive themselves and so at that moment i i wouldn't necessarily say it's the rationale for why we begin to devalue black institutions and places or organizations but at the same time i have an uncle he was born in 1947 and then my grandma she was born in 1940 so she tells us People do, black people specifically, believe that the white ice was colder than the black ice. Um, and, you know, in some cases, that's just a, a legitimate fact in the sense that, you know, white America or I guess you could say mainstream or broad America, they had better stuff. That's just the fact they did. And so a lot of people looked at it like, OK, well, if y'all have the better stuff and I got the money, I want to go over there. If I cannot get access to it, you know, I want to go over there. If I can get access to education, I want to go over there. And I, I think that's the genesis, right, of this thing of where people are maybe like uh, beginning to devalue it. I think it's a byproduct. But then as we get to like the 1990s and the 2000s, I think in the back of our minds, for a lot of people, I, I can only speak to the people that I know and people who I've been exposed to. I think there is, and this is just my personal conviction, I think there's this sort of kind of psychological trauma where people believe that, and this is black people, people believe that, you know, to be independent in the United States, independent in a radical way, not independent. And when I say radical, not in the, you know, in the, you know, burn everything, burn everything down with, but independent in a radical way of being an entrepreneur and 100% black ownership, that scares a lot of white people. That really does. That scares a lot of white people. And a lot of black people know, I think we know, I know, right, that it scares a lot of black people. So I think a lot of people look at it like, you know, um, you know, we, we always want to have that that code, that co-partnership, that co-dependence with somebody white or that relationship to them or that engagement, you know, with them in that context. So the broader America, the mainstream America, you know, hey, I'm not here to threaten you. I'm not here to mess up anything. I'm not here to, you know, tear anything down in that instance. I'm not here to come and take your spot in that regard. I'm just really here to you know, you know, make my mark and, you know, just kind of be in my own corner um, in that sense. But, you know, I would argue that considering the degrees that we have, considering that the Google, the iPhones, all of this technology that we have, uh, more folks need to be independent and need to step out, you know, on that limb and really engage in a way that, you know, maybe some people are afraid to do. You know, we know what's going on and people don't want to, you know, talk about it or admit to it. But th those are the facts. So that's just my thoughts. When you were speaking, the it was multiple things that kind of started lining up to me because I was going to ask you once, ask y'all a simple question, but to add context, I feel like there's a very, there's for a long time, there's been a need for assimilation because to what you were saying, not seem more threatening. Because even when we started this podcast, we were talking, trying to figure out names. And I think one of the names mm -hmm. that we had, we were thinking about had the word black in it. Yeah. And then like my dad himself, he was just like, and my dad is very black. <laughs> my dad is very on the radical side, but he was, he, him even said, he's like, you all, you, with that name, you can scare a lot of people off before they even get in. And it's like the idea that our blackness scares us and like we want to have that assimilation. Like, have y'all seen Lovecraft? All right. So with Lovecraft, you know, with Ruby, her turning to the white woman to be able to get her success. Like this is this need for black people to, to be non-threatening to white people to get to gain success. 
So I, the question is, and I've heard this argument a lot, did we start losing when we started fight to integrate? Yes and no, because it's like the fact that we started fighting, we gained more confidence in ourselves. But the fact that we allow integration allowed us to start depending more on white people. So that's why I say yes and no. It's like it was like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation almost. Like that's how I look at it. So do you think we were better off staying segregated? There's no right or wrong answer. I just, <clears throat> I asked that because that's something my 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 cousin asked me all the time. And I never have an answer for him. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I want to know y'all's opinion. Honestly, I'm going to, like, from my personal perspective, I like the idea of being segregated because of the way society is now. But I know that wouldn't be good for society because then no one knows what's going on on the other side. Like, it's basically, it'll be one of those things, like, say, if we let someone inside of our space, now it's like, okay, are you a spy? Almost. Mm -hmm. No, you won't be able to trust the other side at all, like in any situation, because they're never a part of your group. So anytime that you got to maybe defend, like say even defend the country, defend the space or something to go against another, uh, another enemy, a bigger enemy, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to kind of gather to negotiate or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So that's what we needed the segregate, I mean, the integration for I'm always conflicted in regards to like, should the fight have been for integration or should have the fight been to just give me my resources? Like, give me my tools, give me my stuff and let us be great on our own. But even integrated, we still don't have them. Even integrated, but I'm just like, when you're in, when the fight was for the integrating, you, we were fighting to get into the white school. We weren't fighting for you to give us better books in the black school. So I was saying like, if the fight was to give me my better books, give me my, like, give me my stuff that y'all have, but just let me have it. I'm always conflicted as like, well, we've been better off. But then same to on your end. And well, now my, my thought ended up being like, how many Black Wall Streets would there have been? How many roles was, would have there been? How many other stories of something random happening and white people coming in and burning down that town out of threat? Just because just cause it was separated don't mean that that fear is gone. I was just going to, because I was about to say, how many more January 6th is exactly. my birthday <laughs> would we have had? Because... Going, both of you have been saying like if if I don't understand what's going on on the other side I've seen you as a threat since day one mm -hmm. now I see that you have these business, businesses you have your own schools we're still in essence competing for the same resources the same opportunities so why wouldn't I go over there and burn it down because yeah. I, see, I still see you as a threat Mm -hmm. I don't know, y'all. This is... Yeah, yeah. Do I think that we should still be segregated or whether we should be integrated? First of all, I don't think we even believe we're integrated. Let's start there. Right? <laughs> I don't even believe we're integrated. I, I think that's a fallacy and that's a myth right there. So let's just start there. And the reason why I say that, there's a, actually a story. Uh, it's a series on Hulu and it's the uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And she was talking about the actual author and writer of the 1619 Project of students wanting to integrate. And this is an urban community of students, Hispanic students, black students, so on and so forth, into an affluent white district, school district. It's very common across the United States for there to be white school districts and there to be, you know, the other school districts, the more diverse school districts. Even when you think about churches, like church yeah. on Sundays, you know, they say the most, you know, this is what Martin Luther King said, I believe, or, or someone from that time, the most divided time, the day of the week is on Sundays, right? And so, um, you know, again, I don't believe we have integrated in a way that we want to believe, but then, but at the same time, 
we've integrated in a public setting, in a public sense. So like, for example, I, you, I can get on a metro with someone of a different demographic, particularly someone who's white. I think that's really what this conversation is about. Um, I can get on a metro with somebody who's white. I can go into the grocery store with someone who's white. I can do all of these things. And some people are like, oh, we're integrated. Ha ha ha. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because let's think about what integration was really about. There were all those things together. It was about the schools. It was about the economics. It was about, you know, culture in terms of violence. It was about all of those things together. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if we're not getting all of those things together, that's not integration. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. So um, in yeah. that sense, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I would prefer segregation because um, I still think we're segregated. That's just me. You're right. Because even thinking about the schools we worked in or just like even Florida State, for example, where Florida State is literally plopped in the middle of the hood. And it's just like it's very separate from the rest of what Tallahassee look like. So the idea that we're integrated is really just like we all say like racism has the things that we fought for, like in the civil rights. It was the very tangible racism is literally like white water fountain, black water fountain. We're not there no more. But when it comes to like the more abstract, like where my school, where these neighborhoods, like all that stuff is, it is still segregated and it's not the segregation that people who black people who like argue or defend segregation it's not the segregation that they want is they want the they want the black wall street they want wakanda they feel like black people should be by themselves and build their own wakanda and that's what that's segregation they fighting for listen they want to create their own country get a little island just like bring all the black people there (laughs) but to be real we have the opportunity to do something we're not doing it now like there's wealthy black people and the amount of wealthy black people like super affluent but how many of them are going back to help build those already segregated neighborhoods or those already segregated schools? So, like, the the ground is there. It's just no one's really doing that work to build a whole bunch of Black Wall Streets everywhere. I would have loved to just see Black Wall Street, just to really just be there and see what it looked like to just see a whole bunch of Black doctors and lawyers and banks and just all this stuff just to see it and, like, just imagine the pride that's in that because now when you think about black neighborhood, you don't have that image. Yeah. And not only that, but the idea of equating blackness to struggle, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be a thing. Yeah, it wouldn't be. Because you would see black people like thriving, like a community of mm-hmm. black people thriving, not just individuals. You know, we, we actually are in a position to improve it. We, we do have more, you know, that we can use more and more we can work together. Like you said, people who are a little bit more affluent, you know, uh, pour into our communities and, and begin to form some partnerships. And, you know, here, here you are and y'all are trailblazing, leading the part in the sense of starting SOS, Sons of Sophistication and raising royalty in all types of groups and organizations. And so, you know, these are type, these are things that if we did in the 1920s or the 1930s, you know, it would be destroyed, would be killed for, things of that nature. And we still will today. That's just the facts. Let's not downplay it. But there's a difference, right? There's a difference, especially as we compare it to, again, other folks across the African diaspora. So, you know, I think that, um, I think, you know, as we're having this conversation, there's a way to connect ourselves more and, and pour into our communities in a more intentional way. And so I hope, you know, one day this hits Twitter and so, no, no, seriously, no, Not seriously, no, I, I swear, I'm so serious because I just seen Master P. He was like, oh, you know, you know, um, a lot of black people, a lot of black creatives, they're going on Clubhouse and, you know, we're making them rich, this and that, that and this. And I was like, Master P, form Clubhouse. You got the money. You got the capital. P. Diddy. Uh, who else? Uh, Jay-Z. All of these folks. 
you know, you have a lot of people who have a lot of talent. I would personally argue because of the type of innovation and creativity that we've had to, as black Americans, as black people, as marginalized folks, had to tap into and buy into, you know, you would probably get way a better product, a better invention, a better service or whatever it is because of that type of creativity and innovation in comparison to going down the more traditional route. Um, and so, you know, I really hope that, um, and I really would like to see folks work together more. You know, Issa Rae say people are always trying to network up in, in comparison to networking across. You know, so uh, you can be someone who is a model, but you're trying to get your work out there. And there's someone who take photos. Okay, but then there's also someone who's a videographer. But then there's also someone who's a music artist. Y'all can all work together. The model could be, you know, the video vixen and the music video. The videographer can do, can do this. And then a, the person who take pictures can do that. There's ways in which we can bring our community together to work together, but we just have to want to do it. That's just my opinion. I feel like we are, thankfully, like us speak, speaking about us at these at in this recording, we're thankfully in a position, a better position than when we grew up in, in re- regarding that we've all been able in some way, some, some form to be able to give back, you know, reach back and like kind of help someone else younger than us, a, a younger generation, someone who might have like been in a position that we were in when we were younger. We've done it, but we know too often that it's not too much. It's not like too much of a common thing like it's not something that happens all the time do you feel like it is our responsibility do you feel like it should be like our responsibility to reach back and and do that like once you get to a certain level i'm gonna reach back and give back like do you think that should be a responsibility that is taught and preached within the black community or is it you know every man for themselves yes it is it's definitely our job to reach back it's definitely our job like what's the point of having the knowledge if you're not gonna spread it like what's the point of having it at that point like, at, then you basically just getting an education for no reason or getting an education for yourself. And everybody got to die. So where that information go once you die? It goes in the ground with you. Now everybody else back to square one. Yeah. So that's the point that you got. You got to reach back once you get to the top. That's the only way that you, your people, the people that's on the same level as you're going to advance. With shameless plug, curve the corporate. That's what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think people who are, I guess you could say, more of the black affluent class, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect between, you know, you know, folks, you know, who inhabit that space and folks, you know, who are part of the working class. And I think that disconnect is about priorities. I think there's a, you know, just a distortion. And, you know, a lot of this is due to the, the narrative that is going through the mainstream conversations um, in the sense that, you know, people, again, people who are black and working class, Priorities are just in the wrong place, not having priorities in the sense of focusing on, okay, how can I better myself for, you know, when I get to 20 years down the road, I can be able to pass this on, you know, generational wealth, etc. But at the same time, you know, there's other variables and other factors at play that prevent someone from doing that. So, you know, to, to sort of assert that priorities are wrong, in the wrong place, it's almost like, well, what are your priorities? Notes, be transparent, let the people know what's going on. So we can move forward and we can be great together, reach back, you know, help one, build one, all that great stuff, donate to SOS and Raven Royalty. <laughs> <laughs> but thank y'all for joining us. Thank y'all for joining us and dropping all these amazing nuggets. Yeah. Um, this conversation was definitely valuable. First of all, you came with all the history lessons. Sure. <laughs> okay. You came with dates, dates, dates and everything. Everything. I always appreciate it because I do not pay attention to history. <laughs> like always, uh, we have a question for you all, for the lovely people into the in the world. And our question is, is it our responsibility to reach back to help? And if so, how are you doing it? Can I modify the question? Oh, okay. 
<laughs> I don't think it's a question of do you feel like, it, it, I'm telling you it's your responsibility. It, all right, it is. So my question is, are you going to accept the responsibility? And if so, what are you doing to give back? Yes. Because the responsibility is there. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of are you stepping up to the plate in order to take it or are you ignoring it, shying away from it and just trying to live in your own bubble? And why are you scared? Why? 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 We're calling you out. We're calling you out. So <laughs> with all that being said, I have to reiterate, like, y'all, this was an amazing conversation mm-hmm. and I am so thankful to both of you all for joining us within this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. <laughs> so without further ado, are there any questions, comments, concerns? My hearty mind is clear. <laughs> Listen, yes. Apparently someone been listening to this since season one. <laughs> All right, y'all. We will see you in another episode of Higher Unlearning. Peace. I got, I got, I got, I got loyalty, got loyalty inside my DNA.